Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen have fattened, and uh, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite the, to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up um, hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Uh, They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers amongst us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife shall, will she be uh, Will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her. Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? 
Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, Well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. There are some people in public life who've got this uh, great gift of being able to defeat their enemies, uh, not with swords, but with, uh, with words, and often uh, simply by the use of their great wit. Uh, one of the uh, former Australian Prime Ministers, Sir Robert Menzies, was an absolute master at it. I heard of one story whereby Menzies was uh, addressing a rowdy crowd of Victorian coal miners in a civic hall, which is a very brave thing for any Conservative Prime Minister of Australia to step into a context like that. But uh, he was addressing this crowd of coal miners and one of the guys in the front row tried to insult him and he yelled out and he said, uh, come on, Bob, tell us everything you know. It won't take very long. And the whole meeting sort of erupted in laughter. But Menzies looked the guy in the eye and quick as a flash said, I'll do better than that. I'll tell you everything we both know, we both know because it won't take any longer. Right? Now, touche to uh, Robert Menzies. Uh, there was another occasion where he was in an election rally and a lady called out and she said to him, I wouldn't vote for you if you were the Archangel Gabriel. Menzies, quick as a flash, looked at the lady and said, Madam, if I were the Archangel Gabriel, I'm afraid you would not be in my constituency. Again, he's uh, touche to Menzies. Uh, Menzies was no pushover. Uh, in fact, uh, during his long political career, people came to realise that if they were going to insult Menzies, then they should to prepare next to be defeated by his words. Now, Jesus is very impressive in the way that he handled his critics. Uh, not because of his quick wit, but uh, rather it was just that Jesus had this ability to, uh, to see through people's motives and to expose them for who they were and what was going on in their hearts. Uh, he also had this ability to engage his enemies in stories which they were pretty interested in, but the stories had this kind of sting in the tail and ultimately uh, his engaged enemies would find themselves being condemned by the stories that Jesus told. Now we've seen that, haven't we, as we've been uh, looking last week at Matthew chapter 21 and we'll see it again as we look at chapter 22 this week. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles at Matthew 21 and 22, Jesus, as you remember, had entered into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was home base for his enemies who were the religious uh, leaders of Israel. And what we see here is that uh, there, was, there were a number of groups who were his enemies and they had all lined up to have a go at him. I want, to, I want to take you through and just show you the variety of people that were enemies of Jesus. If you have a look, for example, 21, chapter 21, verse 23, 
we see there that it was the chief priests and the elders of the people who were his enemies. But then if you'll have a look at chapter 21, verse 45, it was the chief priests who plotted with the Pharisees. Then go over to chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. Here the Pharisees teamed up with another group called the Herodians. Uh, In chapter 22, verse 23, a group called the Sadducees tried to trick him. And then in verse 34, the Pharisees come back and have another shot at him. It's as if Jesus has uh, has stepped into the ring and he's taking on all comers. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what happened here. All right? um, remember the context? Jesus is in the temple precinct. Uh, people have gathered around. They're listening to his teaching. And amongst the crowd listening to his teaching are also his enemies. So Jesus tells a story. Have a look at this. In verses 1 to 14 of chapter 22, he tells a story. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet that a king had prepared for his son. Now, in our culture, we think that weddings are complex, but we've got no idea. There are other cultures in the world where weddings are far more complex than what they are in Western culture. Um, and it was the same in first century Palestine. Uh, in, in first century Jewish culture, a wedding was was a huge event. Uh, weddings were big social community events, and they weren't over in a day and a night. A, a wedding would go for at least a week. Uh, sometimes it would go for two weeks, and in the case of a very important person, it would go for three weeks, even longer. And there was a lot of prestige associated with the wedding, how big the wedding was, how many people were there, and so on. The way it worked was this, that the the groom's family would send out invitations to people who they were inviting to say that there's a wedding on, it's going to happen approximately at a certain day and time, but... uh, It was only when they had everything finally prepared that they would then send out messengers and say, look, it's all prepared now, the wedding's set up, the banquet's ready to roll, so you can come now. That's the way it worked. Now this wedding, in Jesus' story, is more important than most. If you have a look at verse 1, we see that it was the king's son who was getting married. Now can you imagine getting an invitation like that? I remember seeing Steve Irwin interviewed by um, Andrew Denton uh, a few years ago on that show, Enough Rope. And Andrew Denton asked Steve Irwin about a particular invitation that Steve Irwin had received. George Bush had invited Steve Irwin to a dinner at the White House. That's a pretty big event, isn't it? But Steve Irwin wasn't interested. I mean, getting all dressed up in a suit and tie, you know, having to mix with politicians and all of that kind of stuff. So he declined the president's invitation. Now, in Jesus' parable, something worse than that happened. The king sends out the invites, but everybody said no. 
Uh, in verse 5, we're told that one man uh, went off to his field, another man went off to his business. And it's, so it's like saying, I'm sorry I can't come because I've got a few jobs to do. I'm sorry I can't come because I'm, I'm too busy making money. I'm too busy, you know, doing all these other things to bother with going to the wedding banquet of the son of the king. I and mean, this is outrageous. And their excuses are pathetic. They're too busy. Friends, the gospel is an invitation from the king of the universe to come to the wedding banquet of his son, Jesus. The gospel is the greatest invitation that anybody could ever possibly receive. But people ignore it. People are too busy with the meaningless trivialities of life, like you know, earning more money, getting more possessions, uh, workaholism. Uh, they're too busy with these things. They're too busy with the minor trivial things to even to accept the invitation to the greatest event that there possibly is, and that is entry into the kingdom of God, which is like a wedding banquet. But it gets worse in this parable, because in verse 6, you know, whereas on the one hand you've got some of the invitees say, look, oh, it's too busy, I've got to do my business. In verse 6, other invitees decide to actually kill the messengers. Imagine that. Imagine the king sends his messenger out to invite you to the wedding of his son, and when the messenger arrives, you pull out a gun and shoot him in the head. Right? Why would someone do that? I mean, that, that is outrageous. The only possible reason why people would do that would be because they hate the king and they hate his son. Now, in verse 15, in verse 15, the Pharisees obviously drew some conclusions and concluded that Jesus was talking about people just like them. And that's why they started plotting against him, having heard that story. See, the reality is that God had kept on sending prophets to Israel with the invitation, but Israel kept on rejecting them and kept on killing them. So the situation the king finds himself in is this. The banquet is all prepared, but no one's coming to the party. And so if you have a look in verse 6, the king says to his servants, he says, well, I want you to go out onto all the street corners and just invite anyone and everybody. doesn't matter who they are, invite everyone to come to the wedding banquet. Now, it is the same with God's invitation to us because God now invites everybody, not just the Jews. The kingdom is now open to the Gentiles. The kingdom is now, the invitation is for anyone and everyone in the world who is prepared to accept the invitation. But we enter God's kingdom on his terms, not on ours. The reason I say that is there's this interesting twist in the story here, because in verse 11, the party is now in full swing but it says, when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed that there was a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I suppose you've got to wonder what Steve Irwin would have worn if he'd accepted the invitation to dinner at the White House. I imagine he would have dressed up in a suit and tie, but you can, I can also imagine he'd be 
preferring to be dressed in his khaki shorts and his uh, khaki shirt, all right? Well, someone has turned up at this wedding, but he's not dressed for the occasion, and so he gets evicted. Now, it's not clear uh, why the king would expect everybody to be in the right wedding um, dress. I mean, after all, he's just gone out to the street corners and invited everyone to come in. You know, some people speculate and say, well, you know, maybe the king had provided wedding clothes for all of his guests, but this bloke decided, nah, I'm not going to dress like that. I'm going to come on my terms. Um, whatever the case, it seems that although the king has graciously invited this fellow, that uh, he's not interested in turning up on the king's terms. He wants to do it his way. And it's the same with people these days who think that you can have Jesus as your saviour, you can accept the invitation into God's kingdom, but you don't have to have him as Lord. That is, you don't have to repent. Um, Salvation and repentance goes hand in hand. We are only saved as we repent. There's no such thing as having one without the other. Well, the Pharisees are offended, and so in verse 16 they turn up with the Herodians. Let me say something about these two groups. The Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other's guts. They hated each other. They were enemies. But they were united here because they had a common enemy in Jesus. They both hated Jesus more than they hated each other. And so, they approached Jesus... And look at how they approach him. They they start they but they try to butter Jesus up. Let me read verse sixteen. It says uh, the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I mean, they've got to have their fingers tied behind their backs while they're saying that, haven't they? Right? They don't believe that. And they say, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. This is a trick question. The Jews hated paying taxes to Caesar. That was paying taxes to the Roman overlords. That's why they hated the tax collectors. And so, if Jesus says no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees and the Herodians know that the crowd is going to turn on Jesus. right? And that would suit their purposes. If, on the other hand, he says yes, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, then that's the trigger for them to go and dob him in to the Roman authorities and have him arrested for treason. So it's a it's a trap. Now, have a look at verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They bought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Uh, a few years ago, uh, I was with Andrew in a coin shop down in Sydney 
and we purchased a denarius. At least that's what the fellow told me it was. It looked very old and it had a portrait on it of the fellow who looked like a Caesar. The very common denariuses are not all that expensive. You can get them for $40-$50. But you could see on it the image of the Caesar. And that's 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 critical because the the word which Jesus uses here, which is translated as portrait, is the Greek word icon, and it means image. He's saying, whose image is this? And in verse 21, Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And you see in verse 22, when they heard that, they were so amazed that they left him and they went away. Now, why were they so, so amazed? Why was Jesus' response so um, pointed that they walked away? I'll tell you why. What is God's image? In, Math, in, in Genesis chapter 1, the image of God is man. Man is the image of God. And Jesus is saying here, well, if this coin uh, has Caesar's image, then give it to Caesar. But how about giving to God God's image? How about giving yourself over to God? How about turning your life over to serving and worshipping your creator? How about repenting? That's what he's saying here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give yourself to God. Now that's round one for Jesus. But then in uh, verses 22 to 33, there is another religious group that has a crack at him, and this time it's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees come to him with a hypothetical. Here's the hypothetical. The Old Testament law said that if a man uh, was married to a woman and he didn't have any children and he died, then if he had unmarried brothers, then it was the responsibility of the unmarried brother to marry the widow and to produce children on behalf of his deceased brother. That's the law. I think that means I would want to check out who my brother was going to marry before he married her in that case. But that was the law, right? Now, so here's the hypothetical. There's, there's a fellow and he's got six brothers and he marries this girl. They don't have any children and he dies. So his next brother, who's not married, marries the widow and he doesn't have any children with her and he dies. And then the next brother, he marries the widow and then she, he dies. Then the next brother marries the widow and then he dies. And the next brother marries the widow and then he dies. And then all of the seven brothers have married this girl and they've all died. Some people have unkindly referred to her as the woman who could not cook very well. <laughs> there was a problem there. Right? So the question is, in verse 23, when they get to, in the resurrection, when they get to heaven, um, whose wife will she be? Uh, it sounds like an interesting question, but these guys are not actually interested in the answer. This is a trick. The reason, the reason it's a trick is that the Sadducees were, they were convinced that there was no such thing as a resurrection. That, you know, it's this life and this life only. Right? And so, 
Jesus cuts through their nonsense. In verse 29, he says, look, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Because at the resurrection, there won't be such a thing as marriage. We will be like angels. Now, he's having a dig at them at that point because the Sadducees didn't actually believe in angels either. And then about the resurrection, he has another dig at them because the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So he takes a quotation from one of the books in the Bible that they actually believed in, which was the book of Exodus, and he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of, uh, of Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now Jesus' point is this, that uh, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that is, he is still their God because they are living, because of the resurrection. He's not, he says, I'm not the God of the, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the issue here is that he's quoted to them the scriptures that they claim to believe in. So how did they respond? In verse 33, the crowd was astonished. And the Sadducees didn't have anything further to say. He silenced them. They couldn't come up with anything further to attack him with. So then the Pharisees step into the ring and in verse 34, one of them asks Jesus, he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, notice there that the reason he asked him was because he wanted to test him. Again, he's not fair income about knowing what Jesus uh, Jesus teaches. He's trying to test Jesus. What is the greatest commandment in the law? And in verse 37, Jesus says, uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now at that point, the Pharisees would have been applauding Jesus. They would have been saying, that's great, because they actually believed in that kind of stuff that you should really put, or that they said they believed in putting God first and so on. But Jesus is actually setting them up. Because he goes on to say in verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. You see, the Pharisees claimed to love God, but they were not known for loving their neighbour. They were not known for being kind and considerate and compassionate. And so Jesus is having a go at them. Now, that is, of course, something which we need to watch, don't we? Because we can be people um, as evangelicals who are very passionate about uh, God. We can be very passionate about having the right doctrine, about having everything sorted out correctly. We can be very passionate about having the right missionary uh, ministry strategies and so on. But if we don't treat our neighbour with love, then we've got nothing and we don't truly love God. Now, Jesus wraps up this series of dialogues by putting the acid on them. He asks a question of his own. Uh, It's in verses 41 to 45. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. 
He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, quoting Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, back in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, where there's the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, we saw that Matthew goes to great pains to show that Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And uh, you'll recall, perhaps from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the great prophecy about David's descendant, that David would have a son, he would have a descendant, who would uh, sit on the throne of God uh, forever and ever in an everlasting kingdom. And uh, that uh, he, he, therefore, is the Christ. David, in Psalm 110, calls this Christ, his own descendant, Lord. And Jesus' implication is this. If King David worshipped the Christ, the descendant, as Lord, then what about you? Who do you say the Christ is? What is your attitude towards Jesus? I think we've seen their attitude, haven't we, in what's gone on beforehand. Friends, these, these skirmishes between Jesus and his enemies, um, combined with his miracles, combined with his amazing teaching, uh, tell us that um, Jesus is no ordinary person. No matter how they attacked him, no matter who attacked him, they could never trap him. He didn't resort to wit. Rather, Jesus had this incredible insight and an incredible knowledge of the truth. And so we can see why people were amazed at Jesus. They had never come across anyone like him before. He's no ordinary person. Verse 46, right at the end of this chapter, tells us that from that day onward that nobody dared to ask him any further questions. Jesus is not someone who you can ignore. We need to listen very hard to what he says. And what he says is this. He says that the kingdom of heaven and belonging to the kingdom of heaven is like being a guest at a royal wedding banquet. Now many people think that being a Christian, being a part of God's kingdom, must be incredibly boring. That there could be nothing more lifeless than giving up the life that you're living and turning your life over to God. But nothing could be further from the truth. And that is why Jesus equates being um, a member of his kingdom with being an invitee to really the greatest thing in the first century that he was to be invited to, the wedding banquet of a king's son. To be a Christian, to belong to God's kingdom, is to be in relationship with God. It is a wonderful thing. 
It is joyful beyond comprehension. It is supremely fulfilling. It is the very purpose for which we've been created. And Jesus is saying that the invitation to join that kingdom has been sent out. Now, you and I know that that invitation is only possible um, because of the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we'll look at in future chapters. But how a person responds to this invitation uh, is really the same question as how they respond to Jesus. What we see here is that it is highly possible to be a very religious person but to have no room in your heart for Jesus. To have no place for Jesus in your life. These religious people quibble with Jesus. They try to trick him. They try to trap him. And you can imagine that scene as Jesus is engaging with them. Uh, it's a bit like a verbal street fight that's going on here. And the question is, where do you stand? Well, there's three places where the person could stand. They could stand alongside his enemies. They could put themselves in that camp, opposed to Jesus. Or they could be like bystanders, to sort of look at what's going on and sort of entertained by it and so on and curious about it, etc. Or they could stand with Jesus. The question is, where do we stand? It is not appropriate to simply be entertained by Jesus. It is far from appropriate to be opposed to Jesus. The right response is to submit to Jesus, to stand with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the um, divine insight of Jesus, uh, that he, was a, he is able to see uh, what is going on inside the human heart, and uh, that he was able to expose his critics so that we can see what it means to truly belong to him. It is to stand with him, to submit to him. And we pray that for our sins. Amen.